My wife gets frustrated with me sometimes, as you can imagine. That is not hard to believe. Uh, one thing she gets frustrated with me about that, I, that is an odd habit of mine is that when I'm watching TV, sometimes I'll turn on televangelists. And then within like a minute, I'll get really mad. And she'll go, why do you watch? And I don't know if it's a morbid curiosity or if it's just a lifetime of having watched uh, some of the great charlatans of the 20th century fleece the American public. I I don't know. I really don't know. I just know that, that the reputation of the Christian pastor has been so tainted over the last three to four decades in our media age that it's made me a little sensitive to the subjects associated with money. So I have great news for you today. Sometimes when we talk as we're moving our way through the Second Corinthians 8 and 9, and uh, we'll be addressing issues that are addressed in the text, which is why we would bring it up, uh, and talk about money and church and finances and all those things. I've got great news for you today. Today, we turn the spotlight on the leadership of church, uh, because the text does. And so it's not your turn. It's, it's my turn. Uh, you may remember uh, a couple months ago, Brooks mentioning in one of his messages that the televangelist Creflo Dollar had caused a bit of an outrage when uh, he announced that a uh, crowdfunding internet effort to raise $68 million to buy his expensive jet. Uh, but then they pulled the plug because there was a, like a backlash, uh, you think. Uh, <clears throat> however, the board, and I, and I do that in quotes, of World Changers Church International recently announced that he's going to get the $70 million plane after all, saying the jet is necessary. Uh, the statement from the board said, quote, a long-range high-speed intercontinental jet aircraft is a tool that is necessary in order to fulfill the mission of the ministry. The board also noted that this decision was not made by dollar alone. Now, the jet in question is the Gulfstream G650. And again, I quote, because this is relevant for you all. We plan to acquire a Gulfstream jet G650 because it is the best, and it is a reflection of the level of excellence at which this organization chooses to operate. We, the World Changers family, so value the lives, the safety, and the well-being of our pastors and leaders that we wish to provide them the best air travel experience possible. So it's about caring for the pastor. I think that's something you all should take note of. (laughs) I could use a jet. My international ministry. No, hey, we have a World Wide Web address. So technically, PRISM does have an international ministry. You can log on on the other side of the globe, I've heard. Seriously, uh, the, the, the problem in all of this, if you don't know, is the use of the word the board. You ask yourself, who is this board? Well, the Senate Finance Committee, this would be the U.S. United States Senate Finance Committee in 2006, launched an investigation of Creflo Dollar and other televangelists because their abuse of the tax-exempt privileges of churches and nonprofit organizations was so gross that it merited the attention of the government. Now, I'm going to actually quote from the Senate Finance Committee's report. The Senate Finance Committee said that 
the board, the original registered board of this organization is Creflo, his wife Tammy, and another friend. Now, they said, well, this was the original board, so the Senate said, well, tell us more about who's in charge of this organization and the millions of dollars. Quote, despite repeated communications with World Changers International and their attorneys, they did not provide responses to any of the questions and was of all the least cooperative. (laughs) Go think, go figure, huh? To date, committee staff has been unable to determine the names of the board members. We've determined that Dollar's wife Taffy is an officer on several of the corporations established by Dollar. It's funny that his name is Dollar, too. What is the irony of all that? (laughs) Creflo, more like cash flow. Here we go. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The Bible has very specific principles associated with church oversight, and it includes the functioning of elders and deacons. The notion of a prophet-governed church with a board comprised of family members is not just laughable to you, it's laughable to the culture at large. They know better. We are, as a church, moving into a season where we're moving from a church plant into a more formal season where we have a new constitution and we'll be governed by elders, overseen by elders, and actually have teams within our church that will functionally, a diaconal team that will functionally keep its eye on the money, risking their own reputations to say, yes, everything's being spent the way it's supposed to be spent. This isn't going to be something that I do and Carolyn and I are going to have our own little board And you say, well, maybe you're just being a little self-righteous today, Chuck. Maybe you just are today highlighting all this so you can feel better about yourself. It's the exact opposite. What the gospel has freed us to do, and I'm pointing over here at one of our elders in training, and is we know we're broken. The gospel has freed us to go, I don't want that kind of access to millions of dollars. Do you know what I would, you know how badly I might ruin my life if I had that kind of access to that kind of money? It's a disaster waiting to happen. God knows we are fallen. He's given us these structures for the purposes of protecting ourselves. You do not want to give a pastor control over your money. It's it's a disaster waiting to happen, and it's happening all around us. And it's related to this whole subject of ecclesiology, church governance. It's why it's important. It's actually one of the reasons... Um, I'm studying and trying to get at some point where I can begin to teach ecclesiology at the collegiate level. This is a passion of mine, but our capacity to actually embrace biblical parameters for oversight is rooted in our own confidence, in our own inability. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. Say, I know that I'm broken and fallen. I don't need anybody else to convince me of that. And because I know Jesus loves me, because I know I've been made right in Christ's sight, I'm confident enough to say, he loves me, so bring on the scrutiny. I want to know. You can't tell me anything by God's grace that he hadn't already revealed to me by some friends of mine and others. And today's text gives us some insight into the heart behind the whole subject of accountability. Now, this is a subject that is not unique to the church. Accountability is what makes the world go around. We just celebrated American governance yesterday. Our system, our separation of powers is about a court that is supposed to 
make and assess whether or not the laws are constitutional. I won't get into that today. And at the same time, we have a, a, a Congress that can override and can override the veto of a president. We have a president who can veto the Congress. We, we have all these checks and balances. And yet, even in corporate America, there is growing concern about runaway you know, abuse by those with great financial wealth. And so we see the need for accountability in every phase of life. And yet, somehow or another, somewhere along the line, Christians got, got skittish about saying, particularly with regards to the subject of money, who's watching the store? I, I'm still sort of blown away that people are so willing. And I guess when you're hungry for the Lord and you're growing in Christ and you experience Him someplace, you tend to take for granted or take the word of the people who are in leadership as if uh, it really is from God. And I would encourage you that today we're going to get to see from text, from actual biblical text, a, a means by which leaders should be willing to even place themselves under this kind of accountability, most certainly and particularly in the church. So let's take a look again at this passage from 2 Corinthians 8, grab a couple of things and then move on to enjoy our day in the grace of God. The first is this, accountability has a context, and that's God's people, all right? It happens in the context of community, all right? This is one of those things that we're sure of. Uh, God's people uh, are, are the means by which you and I come to understand what he wants for our lives, come to understand uh, that he loves us. Let's read the passage real quick here, verses 16 through 18. But thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Immediately you see something. You see community. You see the fact that Paul always seems to be in teams. He's sending groups of people, commissions of people, in this case three, coming to administer this gift and to preach the word. And this has always been the way that the Bible works. Jesus had 12 disciples. All of those disciples created their own entourages, and they weren't like suck-up entourages like in Hollywood where you're the wealthy guy and you've got all these people around you. This is not the model. You see here that Paul would call Titus his partner. Titus was compassionate to Paul's longings. In friendship with Paul, Paul was experiencing the joy of Titus's literal partnership with him. Now, we work in teams in our church. The scriptures seem to be full of evidences that there are no lone wolves, and we all know why. Because under severe pressure, we need others to help us sustain our lives. When everything's going fine, we generally do well. You know, you, feel, you can feel like a, a rugged individualist when everything is going your way, but when the stuff is tough, that's when you know you need someone else. You have somebody else there to labor with you. And Titus was one of these guys for Paul. Titus was, according to Paul, initiating this trip himself. He was saying, I recognize that you've got yourself a bit of a situation with the Corinthians. 
I want to go and help. A collection had been taken, pretty substantial one. The Macedonians generously, out of their poverty, give. This is the passages and the sermons that have led up to today. And, and now they have this great sum of money. And Titus, a partner of Paul, says, tell you what, I'll go with the guys to make this work. Now, we'll get to the reasons for that, but I, I want to stay for a second and help you see and really enjoy together the idea that there was such intimacy amongst these believers that this was a guy who was willing to put himself in a, in a place of discomfort in order to serve Paul. And this is how it works in the Christian life. This is how we become servants of one another. We build trust. Listen to what Paul says in the final two verses of today's passage, verses 23 and 24 of 2 Corinthians 8. He says, as for Titus, he is my partner, not my servant, not my subservient. He speaks of him as an equal and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. You see, relationship is what enables people to become interdependent on each other. This is what God is calling all of us to in the Christian life. I'm going to make a quick observation, um, and, uh, and I mean this in the best way possible, so I hope you can hear me and not think I have some selfish motive in saying so. And that is, I know from, a personal, from personal experience, I know from being a part of planting two different churches in two different sections of the country that there is one universal truth, and that is that if you don't, at some point, develop interdependent relationships with others in your church, you'll be moving on within a year to two. It just is that. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be moved back to your home state. It means even if you stay here in California, if you don't develop relationships that matter and mean something and you need them and they need you, the funness of this place will wear off, like the smell of the new car you got. It only lasts a while. And then you think, if you're not content in life, sure could use a new car. This is the nature of interdependent relationships within churches. You're never going to get to the place in life where somebody like Titus with Paul says, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to sacrifice for you unless you log enough time in relationship with people. And I'm not saying submit your life randomly to strange people who think they have some right because of some office they have or because, you know, whether they're a small group leader at a church and it's kind of creepy if you've ever been to one of those churches and it's like, yes, I'm in charge of this section of the store. And you're like, oh, dude, please give us a break. Uh, there are other places too where the pastor will try to assert his authority. You are under me. I mean, and it's like, wow, that is creepy. And, and, and it should be because the Bible has not set up for you to be under a person. It's set up for you to be under a plurality of leaders inside a local church. And there's something for you and me here in that this only takes place over a time and relationship. I have people in my life that speak into my life, but they're not random people. They aren't people I bumped into on the street. If you said to me, I don't have anybody in my life that I run my decisions through, that I run my visions from the Lord through, I would say I'm really concerned about your soul. I'm really concerned because that means that you haven't gotten to a place where you have enough intimacy and relationship with people to trust them with your life and say, you know what? If you don't think this is wise, I'm not going to do this. 
It, it saddens me when people don't have the capacity to put their lives in somebody else's hands. And yet the scriptures seem to indicate that this is what was going on in the relationships. The context for the accountability that Paul was submitting himself to was not odd or not random. It was long-term relationships built, putting myself in fellowship and in community with other people, and it producing a very highly, um, a very highly functioning, healthy sort of community. We also see another concern of Paul's community with regards to the Corinthians. Paul is concerned about their spiritual health. So Timothy's concerned about Paul and says, you know what, I'm going to voluntarily go and do this mission for you and the Corinthians. But Paul then says, you know what, I'm concerned enough about you all that I'm going to send with him a great preacher of the word. And I'm excited for seeing something like this in the text because it says that Paul primarily was concerned about the message of the gospel and how that would come to their souls. And so he says this in verses 12 through 14. We ask you, brothers, I'm sorry, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14, Paul seems to indicate that there is a responsibility that we all have to care for each other in this way. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faith, the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. They sent along people who were great preachers of the gospel because they were wanting people to be encouraged in the faith. This is part of accountability happens when there are people that you're willing to invest your life in who are willing to invest their lives in you and they're willing to walk alongside with you and admonish you and at the same time encourage you when you're feeling faint-hearted when you're feeling weak when you're needing patience this is what's supposed to be taking place this is the community of believers this is what the christian life is supposed to be and it's what is the context for all of this willingness that these people have to say shine the light of Christ into my life into my financial doings if necessary accountability has a context it's God's people I I think about this in my own life the first six months of this year have been uh, uh, really great in some ways for me and then a, a major failure in other ways and the one major failure has been I put on a ton of weight in the first six months of this year. And that's because I've been under severe pressure. I'm not trying to make excuses for myself. But I'm saying when, when I'm, everything's going well and I don't have a ton of pressure in my life, I'm like Mr. Fitness. You know, I get up and I do all my exercises and I eat right and I have the bandwidth to be able to say, yes, I will say no to that high-carb treat. And, 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 and yes, I will go and exercise because what joy there is in exercise. See, that's, a, that's Chuck when everything's going well. All right, well, for the first three months of this year, we were under this amazing pressure of the revamping of this whole building. It seemed like every day there was an emergency and every weekend was a work project. I know, I remember too. And then, and, and then for the last three months, I have been working on finishing my dissertation. And so I've been pulling all-nighter after all-nighter after all-nighter, it seems, just between work and finishing a dissertation. And so I got to tell you, at 2 a.m., when I'm up and I'm craving a bowl of Frosted Flakes, um, there's just not a lot of leftover discipline to be able to go, nah, not this morning. You know, and so, 
And then if you want physical exercise, it's like, yeah, like I'm going to get my butt up off the couch once I have a spare moment. It's me, it's Netflix, it's another bowl of Frosted Flakes. So what you have is, is just a guy who's like, in some ways, life has gone really well for the last six months, but in some ways, uh, we've had an expanding experience as a man. When, things are, when I'm under pressure, I need accountability. I need somebody to help me through those seasons. And so I have set up for the fall. Carol and I joined 24-hour fitness. Uh, when we get back into the regular schedule of me driving and picking up from work, we're going to go to the gym three days a week. And, then, and all those things are going to happen for me, hopefully, prayerfully. The, the dissertation work will be behind me in the fall. But I'm already in place to say I need somebody to help me do this. I don't do very well under the pile, physically speaking, alone. And I can tell you that none of us do spiritually. Accountability is something where you have people you can trust. And it is our responsibility to initiate those relationships and build that accountability. But here's the purpose. All right? Accountability has a purpose, and that is Christ's glory. All right? now, uh, uh, this passage here in, in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 19 through 21 um, yeah, I guess we didn't finish that. Uh, accountability has a purpose. It's God's, Christ's glory. And, and, and this is the, what the passage says, verses 19 through 21. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace, and it's being administered for us, for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Now, I have to tell you, this is the purpose. It's to honor the Lord. It's to, it's to give glory to Christ. And you can see in this passage that their, their primary concern, Paul's primary concern, is that he would send these people to administer this financial gift so that no one would think for a second that Paul had his hands in the cookie jar. This is critical to his experience. Paul wanted the Corinthians to have a person of high regard accompany Titus for the purpose of reassuring him that his ministry is on the up and up. And, and I think there are a couple other things in this passage that are worth mentioning. Notice here that it says in the first verse here, and not only that, he has been appointed by the churches. Paul is saying that there's a group of people who gave money, and they didn't say, hey, you're the apostle Paul, we're just going to turn the cash over to you. These churches said, we're going to appoint these trustworthy people to accompany this gift all the way to Corinth. See, there was a concern, and Paul was willing to tell everybody, you know what? I'm okay with that. People, you shouldn't trust me. The money needs to be overseen as it's moving from place to place. It's reasonable for you to feel that way. It's biblical for you to feel that way. It's also something that the churches are involved with. We as a church are moving to a place of a new constitution where our annual church budget has to be approved by our congregation. Now, you say, well, why? Does the Bible say that? Well, I'll tell you what the Bible does say. It says the congregation has a role in making sure that everything is done out in the open. Uh, and there may be a decision that a church has to make, its leadership has to make at some point, that makes a portion of the congregation uncomfortable. It may have to take a public stand on an issue. And in that sense, leadership is required. But the leadership of churches, and in particular our church, is saying, we want you to see our budget. We want you to see what's going on. We want you to have confidence that there are no shenanigans happening. 
we want to be a church that has a lot of resources so that we can do everything from support church plants overseas, support church plants locally, support missions, do all the things that we can do locally and internationally. We need resources as a church. But in order for you to have confidence that the resources you would give to the Lord to be administrated and administered by this church, and the same way the Macedonians gave money and said, I want this money to go to a good cause, you have to know that that money is actually going to a good cause and not to buy me my $500,000 car, my Rolls Royce, or, or the Prism Jet. You know, you've got to know that there, that there isn't funky crud going on here. And this is Paul's concern. In verse 22 of 2 Corinthians 8, it says, And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So a lot of people think this was the Apostle Luke, but we don't really know for sure. But one thing we know about these partners that were coming with Titus is that they were people of great repute, People saw them and trusted them, and it built their confidence in them. And leaders want that. Real gospel-centered leaders want your confidence, not because they want you to trust in them. They want you to never for a second think, there's something weird going on here. Because our concern, ultimately, is that you would see Christ. See, one purpose of this in this text, it says that his purpose... In doing this, he aims to do this. It's honorable. Not only make sure that everybody would know that this is honorable in the sight of men, but also and primarily in the sight of God. And, and, and he said one of the purposes of accountability is this honoring Christ amongst the outsiders. Paul and his band were concerned that their ministry would be seen as something that would honor Jesus and the impulse of any great leader in a church and any qualified leader in a church, male or female, is that they would be concerned about what outsiders think. It's called being above reproach. Look at what Titus, Paul's partner in ministry, was told by Paul. Why I left you in Crete, he says to Titus, in the letter to Titus, chapter one, verses five through seven, so that you might Put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. This is not trying to please man. This is not saying I'm concerned that people aren't going to like me if I say the wrong thing in the pulpit. It's saying as a leader in a church, whether you're an elder, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a deacon, that the primary impulse is that you would want to be above reproach, that you would have a good reputation with outsiders. And so people of good reputation say, I want your light shined on this. I got no problem with that. I want you peering in. See, the purpose of our accountability is the glory of Christ so that we wouldn't distract others from seeing Jesus. I mean, for I don't know who the millions of people are that are hearing these televangelists and buying into it, but I can assure you the people that we're trying to reach aren't watching televangelists. As a matter of fact, if they had any association between us and them, they'd probably quit listening to us. 
Our goal is that they would hear Christ. They would see Christ. And we don't want to do anything or have anything that would even make them think for a second that there was anything that they should be concerned about. So what, you ask? This is a really great academic approach to this passage. Why do we need to know this? If this is a sermon about leaders, why did we even show up this morning, you know, if you're preaching to yourself? Well, I would say this. A Christian leader who is not accountable to biblically directed means of oversight is someone you ought to avoid. There is a danger, and it's not simply because they're ignoring the Scripture. That in and of itself would be enough. But more fundamentally, they have too high a view of their own trustworthiness. You do realize... If you don't, here comes the moment of great truth. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who then hung himself, the one doomed to destruction from all eternity, according to Jesus. He's the one who kept the money bag. Every time I have a treasurer at a church, that's one of the first things I tell him. You do realize Judas is the one who held on to the money. It's important to know. You see, all of us have that potential in us. Anyone who chafes, when asked for evidence of integrity, is immediately giving away that they don't trust and find their identity in God. They're, they want others to think highly of them. They, they get rubbed the wrong way. They think they should be trusted. How dare you question me? I'm super chuck, super prophet. They see a threat. They see the presumption that they could be sinful as an insult to their leadership. Well, what does this mean for us on a practical level? Not just that we want to create structures in our church that model, the, you know, biblical structures, but it tells us all, all of us something really important for us to think about, which is our reaction to others wanting to know something about what's going on in our lives will tell us whether or not deep down inside there is some reason we fear others having influence over us. We fear accountability when we don't want others to peer into our lives. And that should tell us that something is off a bit in our relationship with God. We, we aren't feeling the freedom of the gospel to be able to say, I might be wrong, so please have at it. If you are secure in Christ, if it really is true what the scriptures say, that in God's sight you're holy right now, not like tomorrow that you have been justified by faith in Christ. Your relationship with God has made you perfect in his sight, even as you're being made physically on this world more holy, even as we turn from our our sin and walk in obedience to him. In his sight, you're never going to get more holy than you are right now. This is the testimony of the gospel. You and I are secure in our faith. Well, if that's true, then we, and if that's really our primary identity and our primary joy in life, then the, the peering eyes of others or the questioning of others or that spouse of yours who says, you know what, you really spoke to me in a way that hurt my feelings. You know, we've been there before, haven't we, sweetheart? Not me. You, of course, have done that a ton. Um, no, I, I'm terrible. My words are sharp. And, and, and if I'm secure in Christ, I say, you know what, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I don't have to be defensive. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be worried what others think of me. I can just simply open my life up and say, this is true. Deep down inside, I have the potential to be a a really bad guy, apart from the grace of God, apart from the Spirit of God. Deep down inside, there may be some reason you fear others having a say in your life. 
The second purpose of accountability is that we would act honorably in the Lord's sight. So we are really, in part, saying we don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel, but that also we want the Lord to be pleased. And this presumes that we're concerned about what God thinks and at peace enough with him not to be threatened when others ask us about us. But here's what I'd like us to see in Paul. Paul is secure enough in the gospel that he is the one who enables accountability to take place in his life. This is a guy who wrote a third of the New Testament. This is a guy who was considered the primary apostle to the Gentiles. The apostle Paul is the one who said, I am not threatened at all that we're sending a commission with this money, and it isn't me. This is from the Lord anyway. What do I care if I'm not the one who delivers this? I'm happy to to have other people bring this and make sure that I don't have you know, my grubby hands on any of this. I, I want you to have confidence that we are the real deal. Paul does this. He initiates this kind of accountability. He elevates Titus, who was somebody he like, discipled and led to a place of partnership to say, I, I need and want your feedback in my life. I had a young man who started out being a high school student in our ministry and over the course of when I was in a, a youth ministry in Florida, and over the course of that time, uh, he became and has become a dear friend and supporter. And uh, I remember very specifically though, that when he, when he went off to college, he was playing football, and uh, he would come home for the summer. And one particular summer, um, I was in really great physical condition. And, and uh, he said to me, because we were transitioning from just being somebody who was a a student in our ministry to somebody that I actually considered to be a friend and now consider a dear friend, um, he would say, hey, listen, I'll meet you at the gym. We'll work out together. Now, I really liked hanging out with this guy, and it was sort of an honor, and he was also, like, incredibly buff. And so it was, like, one of those times where, you know, I, I knew that he was expecting me there at a certain time, multiple times a week. And so when those times came and I thought, I'm not going, I just remember him being there. And I said to myself, I, I really don't want to hear from him later about how I was a wuss and I didn't come. And also, I like him, and I don't want to disappoint him. He seems to be in place and waiting. And that relationship, that is what kept me going to the gym. It, it wasn't that I felt guilty. It was that I liked him enough, I enjoyed him enough, that I was concerned about him sitting there waiting for me. For us, there has to be a component of our relationship with God that we desire to please him in such a way that we will invite others others participating in our lives and helping us to grow and pointing out those places where we potentially have blind spots. Accountability is not just for leaders. It's for all of us, but it starts with us, first and foremost, wanting to please the Lord. And then second, wanting to be certain that we don't have anything that would keep anyone from seeing Christ in our lives. This is the testimony of Paul. This is the testimony of hopefully our church in the years to come. We'll have a leadership of people that says, we're open, we've got nothing to hide. But mostly because we're secure enough in Christ that if we do find something that's not good, we'll confess that that's true and we'll move on. Because we're all in the place of needing grace. We're all in the place where Paul was. That only intimate relationship with Jesus made him feel safe enough that he could see himself 
as weak and then look to Jesus to find the fullness of life that was promised to him. Let's pray to that end this morning, shall we? Father, as we talk about uh, money and accountability and these things, sometimes it's difficult to find the relevant uh, moments for us in these texts. But I also know today that we need you in ways that we can't even conceive of yet. I pray for your church this morning, not just here at Prism, but all over this area, that you would uh, give great conviction to leadership at churches that they would be above reproach, that they would want to be above reproach, that they would uh, actually give, uh, that your spirit would give them a sense that what they do is important that how they conduct themselves, particularly as it regards money, that we as a church would be a church that would do the same. That we would be people that was concerned, we were concerned about how people would see us. That you'd bless that concern so that others might grow as a result of our ministry to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.